Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello, and welcome to another episode of After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. How are you doing, Mike? Oh, I'm doing good, Phil. Thank you for asking. How are you? Uh, it's all good here, thanks. You kind of switched things up on me there. I like that, because usually I ask how you're doing. Yeah, we've got to keep the listeners guessing, haven't we? That's right. Got to keep it interesting. <laughs> so this week we're doing Before the Beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a whole new podcast. <laughs> Changing things up. <laughs> so, Phil, why don't we jump right into things tonight? Go ahead and tell everybody what films we're going to be discussing in this episode. This week we are talking about Judd Apatow's directorial debut, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Uh, but first, we'll be giving after the endings to 2003's Freddy vs. Jason crossover. And we will also be looking at the top 10 films of 1967. 2003, was it really that long ago that Freddy vs. Jason came out? A long, long time ago, yeah. That's when those bad boys were fighting each other. That's, that is just mind-boggling to me. It just doesn't seem like it's been that long since, since I watched that film. I know, and it's, it's the final film that uh, Robert Englund played Freddy, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, it is, because then they rebooted it and yeah. uh, made that terrible remake, so... Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Well, I, I'm excited to talk about those films and uh, revisit 1967, so let's start with Freddy versus Jason. This is going to be our first uh, slasher flick that we've done, actually, which is one of the genres that sort of inspired this podcast. Yeah. You know, when I was, when I kind of thought of the idea, you know, Poltergeist was obviously what the main inspiration, as I talked about way back in episode one, but I always was thinking about slasher films were one where it's like, okay, well, now that there's that one girl left and everybody else is dead, what happens when the cops show up and she's the only person? around you know they're gonna pretty much think that she did it in a lot yeah. of cases so that's because it was what i was watching tucker tucker and dale versus evil and thinking yes. the exact same thing right. and it's uh it's it's crazy how many of those slasher films the person who survives will get arrested right right so this is definitely going to be a i think a fun episode uh, this is kind of the granddaddy of well, not the granddaddy. It's sort of the <laughs> the sumo wrestler of <laughs> slasher films because it brought together the two biggest names in slasher horror and uh, put them into one film that I, I happen to have quite a soft spot for, actually. Well, they're both they're both good, as you say, both iconic characters, and it's a uh, it's a fun it's a fun slasher movie, isn't it? It's not it's not one of the best for either of them, but it just has the has some good moments, and it is nice seeing them both in the same film. Yeah, you know what I like about this film is that it it. It only takes itself as seriously as it needs to, and it, it clearly the entire film is sort of a big wink at the audience. You know, yeah. they know it's kind of ridiculous. They know they're not making high art, you know, or cinema, but they just wanted to have fun, and and that's what I really like about it is it's just it's a goofy movie. They they kind of went all out, and nobody really thought they were doing anything more than what they were, which was just giving horror audiences something that they really had wanted to see for a long time. So you know, I, I really I, I enjoy the film quite a bit for for what it is. Yeah, yeah, I'm feeling exactly the same. All right, well, why don't, we, uh, why don't we take everybody through it then and uh, see what we've come up with. Okay, do you want to talk us through what happens in the film? Yes, I would love to, as a matter of fact. So here we go, Freddy versus Jason. The film starts with Freddy Krueger trapped in hell because the residents of Springwood have basically forgotten about him. So he disguises himself in Jason Voorhees' 
dead subconscious, whatever, I don't know you want to call it, uh, disguises himself as Jason's mother and manipulates Jason into heading into Springwood to kill teenagers so he can get everybody scared and start having nightmares again. Then we meet the teenage fodder that makes up the bulk of the film. (laughs) Teenage fodder. (laughs) Thank you. It's a good band name, I think. Yeah, teenage fodder. (laughs) Uh, so we meet Lori, who's played by Monica Kina. We meet Kia, who's played by Kelly Rowland, most famous for being in Destiny's Child with Beyonce. Uh, we meet Gib, Trey, and Blake, and a few more characters to come. So Jason kills Trey in gruesome fashion, but because he, the killing happens while Trey is in bed, the police think that Freddie might be responsible. Then we meet Lori's ex-boyfriend, Will, played by a very young Jason Ritter who are in a psychiatric hospital because they were basically the last people to have interactions with Freddy. They take a drug that suppresses their dreams. When Will learns of the murder, he and Mark escape and return to Springwood to warn the kids about Freddy. But that kind of backfires because now that the kids know about Freddy, they start getting scared, and this allows Freddy to enter their dreams. Right before Freddy can kill one of his victims, Jason kills that victim in the real world, which royally pisses Freddy off. And then basically a bunch of people die. (laughs) And so um, that's sort of summing up some of the action there. Uh, With the help of Deputy Stubbs, who's played by the great Lachlan Monroe, he's the only person who thinks that Jason might be involved. The remaining kids come up with a plan, and a pretty sketchy plan, i got to say, but it's a plan nonetheless, (laughs) to pull Freddy from the dream world and force him and Jason to fight each other. When you think about it, though, any plan they come up with is going to be a bit sketchy because you're dealing with a dream demon and an unstoppable killer. So yeah, I mean, just, really. It's all guesswork, isn't it? What, what's going to work and what isn't. Right. I mean, your options are fairly limited and none yeah, of them are good. Because so. <laughs> there's nev- never been a spell book uh, knocking about for either character, has there, to no. detailing how to beat them? No, definitely not. That's, that's why they keep coming back. Have you explained in any of the Friday the 13th films why Jason doesn't die? No, no. It's same thing as, things, you know, it? a lot of the other ones. He's just, yeah, yeah. he's, you know, a force of pure evil. Mm. So Fair enough. Yeah. So they, they get Jason to Camp Crystal Lake where he fights Freddy in the dream world, but Freddy can't beat him until he makes him think that he's drowning because we know that's Jason's weakness. Laurie enters the dream world and pulls Freddy out. Freddy then reveals that he was the one who killed Laurie's mom because Mark thought that it was Laurie's dad who killed Laurie's mom, but it was actually Freddy in disguise. Finally, both killers are in the real world. They fight in a very entertaining, very long, massive (laughs) battle scene, and they also manage to kill off most of the remaining kids. And eventually, Lori and Will manage to defeat Freddy with the help of Jason as they are about... Let's see, how does this happen? So Jason rips off Freddy's claw arm, and Freddy stabs Jason with the machete, and then the kids blow up the dock, and they both get blown into the lake. But as the two of them are thinking they're safe... Freddy comes out of the water to kill them, and he's got the machete, but then Jason takes Freddy's claw arm and impales Freddy with it, and then the girl, Lori, grabs the machete and beheads Freddy, and Jason sinks back into the water, and they're both supposedly dead. So so that's how that happens. And then as the film ends, Lori and Will have gone away, and as the film ends, we see Jason emerging from Crystal Lake once again, holding Freddy's severed head, which winks at the camera right before everything fades to black. Oh, that cheeky Freddy Krueger. Yeah, he's hard to kill. He's the right one, isn't he? Yeah, he definitely (laughs) is. So that is the plot, if you will, uh, of Freddy versus Jason. Phil, why don't you take us through your day after? I'm I'm dying to hear what you came up with. No no pun intended. Okay. uh, The day after, well, Laurie and Will have gone off, done their own own things. uh, They're not important for my after the ending. Because as often happens in these... uh, Slasher movies, the survivors, you don't always see them. They don't always come back for the next film. Right. 
Okay, so thereafter, Freddy is just ahead, and he, but he realises he can't get back to the dream world where most of his power is. However, he begins to find he has some control over Jason. Freddy knows of a way to return to the dream world, a ritual which involves many deaths which need to take place on Halloween. He manages to convince Jason to begin the long walk to Haddonfield. And we all know what that means. Yes, we do. So that's, that's the end of my day after. What about you? Well, um, I'm going to say that, once again, there may be a couple of similarities in our endings. <laughs> but I think we went in different directions because Will and Laurie definitely play a big part in, in my ending. So I'm sure we uh, have some, some differences. But okay, Doug. Will and Laurie make their way to the Crystal Lake police station. As soon as they walk in, all bloodied and injured, the small town sheriff hits a button on his desk and an alarm goes off. A door opens from the back of the station, and a group of specialized SWAT team members rushes in. They load up with weapons and head off in a van toward Camp Crystal Lake. The sheriff tells the kids that they're always on the ready for Jason (laughs) to come back. He suggests that they get out of town before the army arrives, because they're on their way too. He gives the kids the keys to a beat-up old police car that they keep on hand for Jason survivors, and they head back to Springwood. When they get there, instead of going into town, they get a hotel room at a cheap motel because neither of them is ready to go back into town and face reality again. And that's where we'll leave it for now. Nice. I love the fact the police force do have a, a Jason protocol in place. Yeah, and a Jason mobile for the yeah. <laughs> for the survivors. It yeah, makes well, sense. The amount of times he comes back, yeah. Well, you, that's you, what I'm saying. There's been, what, 10-something yeah. movies with Jason? It's like at some point, you got to imagine the police are going to be prepared or at least you know try to be prepared for him yeah, to come yeah. back again. All right, so how about your immediate aftermath, Phil? Okay, my my immediate aftermath, it, it took a long time, but Jason and Freddy finally make it to Haddonfield. Jason only killed 20 people on the way, so it was quite uneventful. <laughs> <laughs> Freddy knows that Haddonfield's infamous son, Michael Myers, will return, meaning double the amount of murders and hopefully enough power for Freddy to make it back to the dream world. Freddy manages to convince Jason to hide for a while, but finds it harder and harder to keep control of the demented killer. Halloween finally arrives, and Freddy finds he can sense Michael Myers, who is killing already. Freddy eventually gets Jason moving, and they head out into the night. Halloween decorations are everywhere. Freddy mutters to himself, I hate Halloween, <laughs> and blows out a candle in a nearby jack-o'-lantern. That's, that's the end of my immediate aftermath. What about yours? Very good. I like that. Um, all right, so for my immediate aftermath, Will and Lori finally fall asleep in the hotel after putting it off for a long time. They're afraid they're going to dream, so they decide to take turns, keeping an eye on each other to make sure nothing happens to the other. But like you said, Freddy doesn't have his powers back yet, so eventually they both end up falling asleep at the same time. When they wake up in the morning, they've had no dreams at all. However, they turn on the news on the television and realize that the SWAT team and the army unit that were sent to Crystal Lake were clearly not enough to handle Jason and Freddy. Freddy somehow seems to be resurrected, and the two of them are working together. Now, they're forging a path of destruction, and it's a path, Laurie and Will realize, that's heading right for them. Will convinces Laurie that they need more help than they've gotten from the police. He tells her that Mark used to do all sorts of research about paranormal phenomenon when he was in the psychiatric hospital because he was looking for any kind of proof that Freddy really existed. In his research, he came upon a man named Dr. Sam Loomis, Mm. who had gotten some media attention for his insistence that a serial killer named Michael Myers was a force of pure evil. So they head for Haddonfield to try and get help from Dr. Loomis. Oh, the happy town of Haddonfield. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, you know, Haddonfield, Springwood, Crystal Lake, just not not good places to go visit. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see a big budget version of a film with Jason and Freddy just mowing down like a, an army battalion. That'd be amazing. Yeah, it really would. Yeah. That'd be a lot of fun. All right, so... 
Let's wrap it up then. Phil, tell us about your long term. Okay then. Jason and Michael Myers go to work. Freddy keeps pushing Jason in the direction he needs to go. And while Jason and Michael don't actually cross paths initially, they kill many, many people as they make their way towards the high school, which has a, a rather nice boiler room, Freddy's heard. Nothing can stop them. Freddy feels his power slowly returning as he begins the ritual in light of the flames from the boiler. However, before the spell reaches its climax, they are interrupted by a small child dressed in a Halloween costume and wearing a sack on his head. Freddy laughs but notices that Michael Myers has moved slowly away from the small child. Kill him, Freddy tells Jason. He has to repeat this a few times, and then Jason moves swiftly forward and cuts off the child's head. Freddy smiles, but then blinks and looks on in amazement as the child's body walks forward, picks up the head and reattaches it. The child shakes its head and jumps on Jason, crawls all over him, and Freddy once again looks on in bewilderment as Jason's body falls apart, neatly dismembered. The child moves towards the head of Freddy, who panics, but it is too late. Moving swiftly once more, the child lops off the top of Freddy's head, scoops out the brains, pops out the eyeballs, puts a candle in the skull and lights it. Sam has put Halloween right again. Wow, Phil, that was pretty gruesome there. I, uh, I like how you tied it into Trick or Treat. I don't know if uh, everyone's seen that movie, but if they haven't, it's quite a fun little horror movie that's, uh, that's out there. Yeah, I always liked the character of Sam, who's sort of like the guardian of Halloween traditions. So yeah. I thought to make, if we were going to Haddonfield with Halloween, we might as well go a bit more supernatural with it. Yeah, yeah, I liked mm-hmm. it. I liked it a little. Uh, a little. I hope we didn't turn off any listeners there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't. Uh, I could have gone a lot worse with the description, but I just like the idea of Freddy's head being turned into a jack o' lantern. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, listen, we all know about your penchant for serial killers. Clearly, there's a, there's a dark side. <laughs> there's a dark side of Phil. So you know, a little bit of that came out today, but you know, yeah, that's all right. I, I, I reined it in. Very nicely done. Okay, then, do you want to tell us about your long term? Sure thing. So Will and Lori get to Haddonfield, only to find that Dr. Loomis has been committed to a mental hospital. They try to talk to him, but he keeps telling them that Halloween is coming and they need to leave Haddonfield. They finally realize that they're on their own and that there's no way to stop two supernatural killers who are clearly bent on tracking them down with the resources that they have. So they hole up in a library and pull out every book on the occult they can find. When the library closes, they hide until everyone is left. Then they emerge, and they each cut themselves to draw enough blood to paint a huge pentagram on the floor. They perform a ritual they've cobbled together to try and summon a demon that they hope will be powerful enough to stop Freddy and Jason. Hmm. Unfortunately, they mess up the incantation and summon (laughs) Lucifer himself. Oh, blimey. (laughs) Yeah. When they try to tell him that he can't leave the pentagram, he just chuckles and steps right over the mystic barrier. He basically laughs at them, then tells them his plans for Earth. And just before they die at the hands of the freed king of hell, Lori and Will have just enough time to realize that they've brought about the end of the world. Wow. The end. I so, really didn't see that one coming. Yeah, it went a little dark. Yeah. <laughs> You're not the only one. They went big, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I kind of thought that was fun. I thought it would be fun to, uh, you know, this is the, the start of the supernatural demon slasher apocalypse, if you will. Nice, and you just hear in the background Ash going, damn, as he didn't get the uh, the chainsaw started up in time. Right, right. Well, and also I figured this is also the point at which Sam and Dean Winchester could get involved and, yes, you know, and save course. things. But that would make for an extra long episode, so I thought I'd leave, <laughs> things, I'd leave things here for now. Very good. I like that. Yeah, so uh, very cool. All right, so Phil, what exciting or interesting trivia tidbits do you have for us about Freddy vs. Jason? Well, Peter Jackson was apparently asked to direct the film at one point. I can't really see him saying yes to that. Well, it was I could have seen him doing it before Lord of the Rings. Well, well right. It was before Lord of the Rings, but it was he did all the brain dead, didn't he? And uh, that's right. He did do a lot of the, the early, the early, uh, you know, gross out horror yeah, flicks if, and stuff. If he had done, it, I would imagine it being a lot more gorier than I. Oh yeah, he was. yeah, definitely. 
Uh, the lake that was used in the film was also being used at the same time for the final scenes of X-Men 2, hmm. which makes me want to see Wolverine versus Freddy. Oh, Freddy's yeah. Be yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, Jason Bateman was going to play a character called Jarvis, but uh, that was cut from the film. Hmm. And th- 300 gallons of fake blood was used. Oh, that I can believe. Oh, <laughs> and were, interestingly, they wanted to... They were thinking at one point of linking the past of Jason and Freddy together. It was going, either going to have Freddy be Jason's father, who'd done terrible things to his mother, uh-huh. or a counsellor at Camp Crystal Lake who did terrible things to Freddy when he was a child. But they realised that was a little bit darker than they actually wanted to go. So they just left it as it was. 17 scripts were submitted and condensed into the final script. And one of them featured Freddy summoning the ghosts of Charles Manson, Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy to help him. Interesting, especially interesting considering that Charles Manson is still alive. Yes, I know that, that might have the... been that might have been tricky to pull off. But... Maybe he just would have you know turned up in a car or something. Right, right. <laughs> but there was a uh, lots of several endings were considered for the film. Some of them were shot, some weren't. There's going to be a scene where Laurie and Will begin to have sex for the first time, but Will starts acting like a maniac and spots Freddy Krueger claws and kills uh, Laurie. So that one is actually I watched the movie again before we did this recording oh, okay. and uh, as one of the extra features that is the one alternate ending that they actually filmed and put on there. So I did actually get to see that scene. What what's that one look like? Is it uh, work or You know it was it was all right. I mean mostly I liked it cuz I got to see Monica Kina in lingerie. So um, <laughs> but uh, which is super classy of me, I know, but uh, you know, listen, if you're watching a slasher film, you know, yeah, there's you always going to be see that. some girls who are scantily clad. What can I say? Uh, uh, but it was it was okay. I, I kind of uh, preferred the way, the actual ending of the film to that one. I don't yeah. I don't think that would have you know done well, any favors a, for it. There was a couple more. Uh, another ending had Freddie and Jason battling to the death on the dock, and the explosion that happened in the lake. Uh, all the water begins to drain away until Crystal Lake is just dry. The next day, Doctor Campbell sees Freddie's claw on the ground, picks it up. And a red and green striked arm bursts through the earth and starts dragging him down. Yes, actually, that was so. The other alternate scene, they, the ending that they sort of included on the on the Blu-ray, was a breakdown of this this scene where the director and the writer and the producer sort of talked about their vision for it. And I guess what was supposed to happen was a, a big water hand was going to drag them down into yeah. hell, and the the. the the film was going to basically end with Freddy and Jason battling it out in hell for eternity as like gladiators in the arena of hell, which exactly. would have been cool. But apparently the budget wise, it probably would have also doubled the film's budget. Yeah, I quite like this one as well. There was a there's one Freddy and Jason end up in a dark place and start fighting each other. But just then chain shootouts slicing to both of them. They're separated and they can no longer fight each other. When out of the darkness comes Pinhead and says, now what seems to be the problem? <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, I had heard rumors that there was a, a pinhead ending out there. I didn't realize yeah, that's what it, it was. And it either, it either says they couldn't get the rights to it or New Lion thought that pinhead was too low rent, which I can't really see that. It's probably just a rights issue. Yeah, I was going to say, because really, like, like Freddie and Jason are, you know, what, the arbiters of class. And, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, really? <laughs> Pinhead's too low rent for Freddie and Jason. I know. But, yeah, that's... Uh... That's it. There's loads more facts and things about it, but uh, there's some of the, the ones which jumped out at me. Very cool. No, that's very interesting. I like to hear about things like alternate endings. Well, obviously, because that's sort of what yeah, we do. Yeah, so, yeah. All right. Very cool. Well, that's our endings for Freddy versus Jason. Hopefully you'll have some thoughts on those or, or some endings of your own, which you can drop us a line and let us know about those. We'll let you know how to do that in just a little bit. But for now, why don't we move on to the 40-year-old virgin? Yes, okay then. Uh, the 40-Year-Old Virgin, that's uh, 2005, so again, it's uh, it's quite an old film now. Yeah, another one. I can't believe it's been that long since it came out. Yeah, and it's like, uh, it was the directorial debut of Judd Apatow, and co- he co-wrote it with Steve Carell. I think it was Steve's uh, first feature, wasn't it, I think? 
Well, I think it was his first leading role. Yeah, first leading role in the feature film. Other yeah. movies, but yeah, definitely his first leading role. But it's good. It also stars Paul Rudd, Seth Rogen, uh, Romany Malko, Elizabeth Banks, oh, and Catherine Keener, Kat Dennings, loads of other people. Uh, okay, then, so here's the rundown of it. 40-year-old Andy Stitzer lives alone. He collects action figures and plays video games. Hold on a minute, there's some diary. <laughs> oh no no <laughs> Andy which is Steve Carell's character he works with uh, he works with David which is Paul Rudd Cal who's Seth Rogen's character and Jay who is a uh, Romney Malco he ends up joining them for a poker game and while there they find out that uh, Andy is a virgin if I had a nickel for every time that's happened to me yeah so many poker games so there's always one every <laughs> yeah. poker game the co-workers decide to help Andy lose his virginity they give him various advice some works some doesn't one involves getting his chest waxed, but they give up halfway through, and this could well be one of the funniest scenes of the film. Hands down. Especially when Steve Carell, they actually did it for real, so that's often his his shocked reaction. So it's always worth watching that bit again. But Andy starts building friendships with his co-workers and other people, and he gets more confidence, and his life and his job begins to improve. He eventually meets Trish, played by Catherine Keener, and they start dating. And through various events, they decide to have sex on their 20th date. That's still a ways away, but... Uh, other things happen, but meanwhile, David, Cal, and Jay's lives and relationships have their own problems, because that's what happens, it's real life. Uh, but Andy talks them through it, and things start to work out, and things things are getting good for all of them, but then there's the ups and downs as, as with everything. Andy and Trish grow closer, and Trish suggests to sell his action figure collection to finance his own store. Andy ends up taking uh, Marla, played by Kat Dennings, and who's Trish's daughter, to a sexual health clinic, where Marla admits that she's a virgin, and the other patients start laughing at her. However, Andy stands up and says he is also a virgin and gets laughed at by them. But Marla says she always knew he was a virgin, but she will leave it to Andy to tell her mum. So on the 20th date, Andy is still reluctant to have sex and a big argument ensues and he goes off and ends up uh, almost hooking up with Elizabeth Banks' character. But his friends find him, convince him to stick with Trish. Some more various misunderstandings take place, but Andy and Trish end up together. They end up marrying. The action figures sell for about half a million dollars. And they consummate the marriage, and we end with a big song and dance number. The end. Very nicely done. Thank you very much. So, okay then, Mike, what have you got for the day after? All right, so the day after the wedding, Cal, who is Seth Rogen's character, is hit by a bus. It's the same bus driven by a serial killer that killed Walter Sobchak and Honey Bunny, and it will continue to kill off characters that I don't like in movies for as long as this podcast exists. Ah, thoughts. So chalk one up... (laughs) Chuck up one more victim for Rusty Nail. <laughs> so now that Seth Rogen's out of the picture, Andy and Trish are on their honeymoon. So they don't get the news for a week or so that, that Cal's dead. But when they get back into town and find out that he died, they realize that life is too short and that they should pursue their passions. So they decide to take Andy's dream of opening his own store and Trish's We Sell It For You on eBay store and combine them into one business. Andy opens up a comic book and action figures and collectible store while Trish runs the online sales part of the business. And that's where we'll leave it for now. I like that. Thank you. How about your uh, poor Cal, though? You know. I know. I don't know oh. if he deserved it, but I really don't like Seth Rogen. But it's, it's that guy on the bus. I mean, you, you think the police would have caught him by now? He's driving a bus around killing people. But... You would think it wouldn't be that hard to find. But I'm yeah. telling you, he's going to remain elusive until I run out of characters in movies that I don't like. All right. How about your, uh, how about your day after? My day after. Uh, Andy and Trish have an amazing honeymoon. The majority of the action figure money is going into the business they're going to set up. But Andy wanted to see the world. So that's what they do. They also have a tremendous amount of sex on their travels. Of course. Cal ends up uh, hooking up with Beth, who's played by Elizabeth Banks, and he ends up getting beaten up by her, but he loves it. 
<laughs> I can I can see that. Yeah, and that's uh, that's my day after. Very nice. So what about your immediate aftermath? All right, so Andy and Trish open their business to great success. David, who is Paul Rudd's character, leaves the employee of Smart Tech and, still depressed over the loss of his ex-girlfriend, decides to go on a pilgrimage and follow Coldplay on tour across the country. <laughs> God. <laughs> that's my favorite line from the entire movie. Yeah. You know, just, <laughs> you know, I know you're gay. You listen to Coldplay. Yeah. That's just funny. <laughs> anyway... Uh, Jay, played by Romany Malco, becomes a father and settles down with his wife, giving up on trying to be the alpha male player persona he's always projected and becoming just a normal everyday dad. He quickly gains about 50 pounds, <laughs> but he's happy. So what are you going to do? Beth, who's Elizabeth Banks's character, the girl that Andy almost dated, feels rejected when she learns that she couldn't even get a 40-year-old virgin to sleep with her. <laughs> so she goes into therapy to deal with her insecurities. Meanwhile... The customer that gets into an argument with Jay in the store, who was played by Kevin Hart, oh, yeah. he starts to become internet famous when the video of him and Jay arguing gets posted on YouTube and goes viral. And Marla graduates from high school and moves to New York City. Very good. How about your uh, immediate aftermath? My immediate aftermath. Upon their return, Andy gets straight to work on the new business plan. It's going to be an electronic repairs and sales store. It's boring, but it's what he knows. However, he also begins work on a new video game concept he came up with, David Callan Jay. It's designed to build confidence in the player, make them feel worthy, and also has some real-world element goals to help some of the shy members of society go out and make real-world friends. Andy really appreciates what uh, his co-workers and now friends did for him, and he wants to try and uh, pay it forward. Andy and Trisha's love grows. They're the perfect couple. Obviously, they have the ups and downs, as all couples do, but they have many great parties, and people people really like them, and they just their life gets better and better. Marla starts dating a nice kid, but they decide to take things slow. Uh, Cal's still with Beth. The relationship is still going from strength to strength, even though it seems to be getting kinkier and kinkier. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, uh, that's the end of my immediate aftermath. All righty. So where do we go then? Do you want to bring her home with the long term? Absolutely. So Beth gets out of her therapy and writes a self-help book on dealing with rejection and dating that becomes a New York Times bestseller. The customer who argued with Jay, whose name was Kevin, coincidentally, parlays his YouTube fame into a series of stand-up comedy gigs and starts to become a huge sensation. Marla ends up working in a diner in New York and trying to start up a baking company because she's completely broke. But she does make a new best friend, a preppy blonde rich girl. And I believe she somehow comes into possession of a horse as well, if I'm not mistaken. Within a couple of years, everyone settles into their new lives. Andy has to enter therapy when he becomes a sex addict and it starts to put a strain on he and Trish's marriage. Luckily, he successfully treats it and restores his happy marriage to Trish. They continue to run their business, becoming one of the biggest online and local retailers dealing in collectibles anywhere in the country. Eventually, Andy franchises the business and opens up several locations across the country, including one particularly successful store in Red Bank, New Jersey, which is run by a couple of guys named Bob and Jay. <laughs> Eventually, he and Trish retire and live off their franchise profits, and they live happily ever after. <laughs> how many? I wonder how many people listening are, are like Captain America in the Avengers going, I understood that reference. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, well, we, we throw some obscure ones out there. We yeah, also yeah. try and throw some softballs too. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. nice. I like it. Thank you. I, oh, I didn't think of, yeah, I should have, be, I should have had Andy become a sex addict. That's the way to go. Damn. Well, it just seems to me after 40 years of being yeah. a virgin, he might, you know, have some, some pent up sort of, you know, desires yeah. and, and maybe that, you know, I don't, and I'm not saying he cheated on, on Trish. I just think he yeah. kind of like wanted to have sex all the time to the point where it was really putting a strain on their relationship. Because I don't think he would cheat on her. I think he's a good guy. Yeah. I think he just yeah. wanted to, you know, get it on a lot more than she did. So. <laughs> I gotcha. All right. So how about your long term, Phil? Let's, uh, let's uh, see what you got. Okay. So. 
Andy's electrical store ticks along nicely. Doesn't do great things, but he is a trusted member of the community, so people often go there. In fact, his old manager from the uh, the main electrical store he used to work at, Paula, who was played by the wonderful Jane Lynch, she ends up working for him, and she does the day-to-day -day running of the shop. However, the video game, which they decided to call Mano Lantern, uh, proves to be a great success. It gets great reviews and sells really well. Mano Lantern. <laughs> yeah, yeah, from That's the, awesome. uh, from the, that really is the, the funniest episode. scene in the movie when when Steve yeah. Carell gets his uh, his chest hair waxed. That that's for sure the highlight. Well, it's good. That there's a making of uh, of that scene on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and on the, the Blu-ray as well. But it's uh, just showing him, you know, and he's absolutely there in agony. And they have a whole list of insults and things he can he can shout out. Right. But it looks like everybody was enjoying watching <laughs> Steve's pain. I'm sure. <laughs> oh, so the game gets great reviews and sells really well. And Andy also gets many people writing to say how it helped change and improve their life. Marlon ends up settling down, has a couple of kids. Andy and Trisha are now grandparents and realise they have a great life. Cal's still with Beth, still getting uh, kinkier and kinkier, and he loves it. The end. Very nice. <laughs> if it were me personally, I probably would have had Cal die in a kinky sex-related accident, but that, that's just my penchant for killing off characters that's, I don't like. That's so. definitely you there. That's, I think they're the kinky uh, sex thing. Right. Well, I was thinking of maybe having a kinky sex murderer, but I didn't want to have another serial killer after Freddie and Jason. Sure, that's, that's fine. <laughs> this, is a, this is a film I think we could, we could go a little lighter with yeah, pretty yeah. safely. So. Yeah. All right, very nicely done. So there you go, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Uh, so, you know, before we get into our, our trivia about this film, I, I do want to say that um, it's probably my favorite Judd Apatow film. But that's not saying a whole lot, to be honest with you. I'm not really a fan of Judd Apatow uh, for the most part. I don't really care for his films or most of the films that come out of his sort of stable of directors and producers. Uh, this one, I think, is pretty funny. It's not a favorite of mine, but it does have some good laughs in it. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a fun movie, but it's not one that is a, is a comedy classic, in my opinion. Yeah, because I'm just looking through... He's produced things. Let's see. Wait till we do the after the ending for Knocked Up. Then people are really going to hate me because that's a popular movie that I really do not like. Yeah, I didn't. It didn't really. I laughed a bit watching it, but it didn't really do much for me to be honest. It seems it, watching that movie to me is is more like watching a horror movie than a comedy because for the most part <laughs> it's not that funny and you just feel really terrible for what everyone's going through. So uh, yeah. I always liken that to being a, a horror movie. I like you know I have kids and I love kids, but I think the idea of you know accidentally impregnating somebody is fairly horrifying. So yeah, but it's a, I think there's loads of films he's produced which I do like, mm -hmm. but it's the ones he's directed which aren't too hard. But it, Forty Year Old Virgin is the one that I couldn't I could watch above all the others. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But I mean, he's he's produced like Superbad and Ugh. Walk Hard. Yeah, Walk Hard I, I like. like. I do yeah. like Walk Hard, but I do not I do not like Superbad at all. And Pineapple Express, I I, re I really like Pineapple Express. Like oh, really? Yeah, I like that one just because uh, it's. I I don't remember the last time I hated a movie as much as I hated that. Film. Uh, okay. That that's the movie that single handedly made made me despise Danny McBride more than just about anybody else in Hollywood. Ah, uh, I didn't even know I, who he was before that film, and then by the time that movie ended, I was like, I will hate Danny McBride for the <laughs> till the end of days. Fair uh, enough. Yeah, just, that movie, oh man. Oh, and, St and Step Brothers always makes me chuckle. Yes, yes. Yeah, but I think that's mainly because it's Will Ferrell and John C. Riley. Yeah, yeah, they're a good team for sure. Yeah, but also I, I did enjoy uh, the Love Netflix series, which uh, came out this year. Which Judd Apatow just directed, but that stars Gillian Jacobs from Community and Paul Rust. Right, I, I, I quite like that one. Yeah, I haven't seen that one yet. It's a good film one, but I gather from what we've worked out, I don't know whether you'd actually enjoy it, Mike. So. <laughs> probably, a, probably a good <laughs> chance that I, I might not. So yeah. 
All right, so Phil, why don't you give us some 40-year-old trivia here? Okay, then. Uh, well, as you would have guessed, a lot of the movie was improvised. Mm-hmm. We've already spoken about the chest wax scene being real. Uh, at the time of filming, no, at the time of the film being released, Steve Carell was 43 and had two kids. Uh, it was also the film debut of Mindy Kaling, who many people will know from uh, the American Office and the Mind- what's the show she was the, in Mindy the Mindy show, show, yeah, the Mindy show, yeah, yeah. And Jane Lynch's character was originally written as a male character, hmm. and Steve's real life wife Nancy, she plays the counselor in the health clinic. Oh, I don't think I realized that. And that's the 40-year-old virgin. That is indeed the 40-year-old virgin. And like always, if you have thoughts on our endings or you would like to come up with your own ending for the characters, please drop us a line. We will share how you can do that in just a little bit. But now it is time to move on to one of our patented uh, mini features, which, Phil, I believe you have uh, coined a new sort of moniker for our mini features. Is that not correct? Yes, we've decided to call it uh, the Mighty Morphin mini feature. I like that. I like that. It's got a nice ring to it. And I'm a big fan of alliteration, so Mighty Morphin Mini Feature, I- I'm I'm definitely down with that. So, yeah, for the people who've been uh, inundating us asking for the next crazy corporate classic casting cartel of crazy climaxes, <laughs> you're going to have to wait a little bit longer because yes. this week we are doing Tears in the Rain. You do love to quote that Blade Runner uh, monologue, don't you? Yeah. Well, I've seen, <laughs> I've seen you know, attack ships... Oh, Phil. It just fits. Whenever there's crying or rain involved, I find Tears in the Rain is the best quote to go with. Sure. I mean, you really can't beat it. It is a classic. So, Mm. (laughs) all right. Well, why don't we explain? uh, Why don't we explain what Tears in the Rain is, Phil? I'll I'll let you handle this. Actually, since this was your idea. Well, it was. I was watching Field of Dreams with my daughter over the weekend, and my daughter was poorly, so it it was a nice film to watch. But as usual, when the end came up. And a few other bits throughout the film. When the uh, the end scene, when Ray's playing uh, catch with his dad, tears were pouring down my face, and I was blubbing like a baby because that that scene always gets me. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know I'm not alone. No, definitely not. So we decided to just say, what are some of the scenes which make us always cry? Yeah, we thought it'd be a good idea, you know, um, to sort of emasculate ourselves and. <laughs> <laughs> on a, yeah. in front of a mass audience and tell you guys what movies make us, you know, cry like babies. So, But I've also got some uh, some input from some of the uh, the listeners to the show. Oh, so that's we'll right. Have, yeah, well, we'll why, don't, why don't we start with theirs and then we'll share ours. Yes, let's get them, yes. Then we won't seem quite as uh, wimpy. That's right, exactly. <laughs> that's right. I'm not, I'm not crying. I just have something in my eyes. <laughs> I'm just... <laughs> oh, just thinking about it. Yeah. Dad, do you want to play catch? Oh, always gets... <laughs> I know, it gets you a little choked up. Okay, so we've got uh, over on our Facebook page, we had Peter Johnson and Mary Zajac saying the end of It's a Wonderful Life, and that's another one that always gets me crying as well. Yeah, I mean, I really, I, I don't think you can argue with that as a choice. I mean, if the end of It's a Wonderful Life doesn't get you, yeah. then you just don't cry in movies. I mean, I think it's as simple as that, That's because that's one of those ones that turns on the, the waterworks, I mean, every yeah. time, for sure. It's just, yeah, that's just, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about it. Yep. Okay, and then we have uh, Ian Bittle, who said uh, the scene in Big Daddy when the social worker takes Julian away. I can understand that. It's been a while yeah, since I, I I've can, seen yeah. it, but anything that involves kids being taken yeah. away from their parents, I, I'm yeah. you know that that would definitely do it for me. Yeah, yeah. There are some Adam Sandler films later on uh, which do make me cry, but it's not for for those reasons. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> completely different yes, sentiment yeah. at work there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Also, uh, Paul Smith, he said the end of Armageddon 
makes him cry. I can see that. I can see yeah, that. I, I can mean, see. Yeah, it depends depends what mood you want to think in watching that. But right. yeah, I mean, I, I know a lot of people don't like Michael Bay, but I, I like his early films, and I do like Armageddon. More often, I cry during the animal cracker scene with Ben Affleck and Liv Tyler because in a movie that I generally enjoy, that is one of the worst scenes <laughs> in cinema history. But uh, but I can see that. I mean, any, listen, anytime a main character, you know, in, in a movie, I will keep the spoiler free, but anytime some main character might not make it home in a movie, I think that's good reason to cry, don't you? Yeah, 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 definitely, yeah. I don't think I, don't think I cried when I saw it. I was probably just looking at my watch. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Paul. Okay, and I'm um, Ken Sanderson. He says... Uh, the funeral scenes in Backdraft and American Sniper. Sure. Unt- again, totally understandable. And another one, Mary Zajac again, who, uh, thanks for sharing your tears. Uh, the end of An Affair to Remember, the one with Cary Grant and Deborah Kerr, which, again, I can really see that that mm-hmm, one. Mm-hmm. Getting to you. And then Calvin Mofield comes out to left field with the end of Bicentennial Man. You know, I, I totally get that, actually, because... It's the Robin Williams one, isn't it? The robot Robin Williams one? Yes, it is. And I, I like Bicentennial Man. I don't think it's the greatest movie ever, but I do I do like it. But that's actually one of my favorite prose stories of all time. I was a huge fan of the Bicentennial Man. I believe it's Isaac Asimov. Oh, okay. And I, uh, I love the story. And so when they made the film, I was really excited to watch it. And, and while the movie does have its flaws, it's just such a great story that... The ending of it, it, it is really. I, I totally get where Calvin's coming from on that one. It's it's a great ending, and it does it does really just you know, well up the waterworks for sure. Oh, I have to watch it again. I think I saw it probably with the first time it was shown on TV, and I've not seen it since. Right, right. Like I said, it's yeah. it's not a perfect movie. It definitely has some flaws, but it's enjoyable enough. And and I do understand the ending uh, getting you there. So yeah, okay. So have you got a what scenes? Always hit you then, apart from the ones we've already heard. All right. So, well, I have two. I didn't know if we had a limit. Uh, one, uh, two, two's what I've got. All right, good. So, I think one that people will respect and one that people will probably laugh at me for. But which should I start with, Phil? Uh, go with go with the laughter and then get the respect back. All right. Okay. Good idea. So, the one that gets me, and I've seen this movie quite literally over a hundred times, probably because uh, it's a kids' movie or a family movie, and my kids went through a phase for a few years where they wanted to watch it about every day, and it is. <laughs> Here we go. It is Cars. And the scene that I'm talking about... <sighs> but listen. Listen. This is why I don't understand why people don't, don't like this movie. The scene at the end when Lightning McQueen is about to win the Piston Cup and King... The king gets into a crash because of who's racing with all his might, gets run off the track by Chick Hicks, and he crashes, and he and he, he flips over, and, and Lightning McQueen sees it, and he flashes back to the, the fabulous Hornet Hudson, Paul Newman's character, doing the same thing and, and losing his entire racing career because of it. And he stops inches from the finish line and backs up to push the king across the finish line. Come on. I'm getting tears in my eyes right now just talking about it. That is beautiful moment and that's the whole arc of the movie right there is lightning mcqueen learning to not be a selfish thing for himself or and to you know to value other people and so i love that scene it makes me every time i watch it every hundred times i've watched that movie but when that scene comes up i get i get tears in my eyes never fails fair enough never fails and i don't i don't understand how other people don't have that same reaction it literally boggles my mind yeah well i suppose you're happy down the news of uh, Cars 3 coming out. I'm happy because it looks like they're going to return to the racing storyline, and it's going to be back about Lightning McQueen again. My biggest problem with the second film was that Lightning McQueen was a, was a supporting character in it, and the, yeah, really the yeah. film's all about Mater and the spy stuff. And, I, you know, I like Cars 2 for what it is. I mean, it's okay. I think something like Mater, though, works better than the short films. Exactly. But the third yeah. one, from what I read about it, the plot is going to involve Lightning McQueen sort of as an 
aging racer kind of getting edged out by younger racers and that he kind of has to bring on like a, a Mr. Miyagi type car to help yeah. him get his mojo back. And that sounds to me like it could be, you know, a classic film like the first one. So, yes, I am. I am quite happy about it, actually, because I love cars and I'm not ashamed to admit it. And you're all wrong. You're all wrong. <laughs> well, hope, hopefully Cars 3 is uh, is going to be the best of the series. I see what you did there, Phil. I know what you're, I know what you're trying to say. I get, I get what you're saying there because it's because you don't think Cars <laughs> is very good. But you know what? You're wrong, too. Cars is better than Cars 2. Yes, I'll give you that. yes, it is. It's also better than a lot of other Pixar movies. But I know now I'm just really stoking the fires. And yeah, that, are, that's the minority. People are going to send in the hate mail, but that's okay. I'm yeah. telling you, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Cars will have its day. It will have its day. Sorry, I didn't hear that. I'm just writing a letter to you, some hate mail. <laughs> All right, so... Uh, Dear Mike, uh, why, oh, why, oh, why? <laughs> why don't you share one of your picks, and then I'll, I'll try and earn back some people's respect. Okay, well, I'll do... Uh... My, I had an animated film. It's the uh, the Iron Giant, of course. Great and stuff. The end, the end scene when he becomes Superman and takes off to save the town. Yeah, yeah, that's it's brilliant, brilliant choice. I, I love yeah. that movie so much. Yeah, it's 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 a wonderful film, isn't it? And just but that scene, I just <gasps> yeah, gets me. Yeah, every, every time. Every time. Every time. Good choice. Thank you. All right, so here's my my other choice uh, was one that gets me every time, which is the end of Remember the Titans. Oh yeah, yes. It's probably hands down my favorite sports film of all time and it's actually probably one of my all-time favorite movies i i think that's one of those movies that i think people saw it and they liked it and then they kind of forget about it a little bit but it's it's yeah, one of those ones yeah. where every time i watch it from the minute it starts till the very last scene i am like this is a great great film i i love it so much and that at the end so spoiler alert for anybody who's listening who hasn't seen it at the end and this is based on a true story so when gary bertier who's kind of the star the star white player on the team, who's made friends and was kind of the driving force between the white players accepting the black players after they win their big game and he gets hit by a car and paralyzed. It's like, oh, I'm, right now I'm already getting all emotional. Like, it gets yeah. me every time. But that is such a great movie. And... What, and then they then they do the, the the kind of the after the endings, which is my favorite thing about movies like these, where they sort of give you the um, you know what happened in real life to these people after the film, you know after the events of the yeah, film, yeah. And uh, you find out that you know Gary and I forget the other player's name, but they were friends until Gary died. It's like, oh, it's just, just you know, <laughs> it's it's like in some of the it's like reading a Stephen King novel and he just casually mentions that one of the characters you loved was just killed in a, just a totally banal way and right. going, what? Right. Oh my God. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's very tragic. And I think being based on a, on a real story uh, makes it much more so. But yeah, so I love that movie and that, that scene. You, you're right about me. that film. It's one of those great movies though, which people forget about because I'd forgotten about it until you mentioned it. I think but so. I, you know, it's one of those ones. I've really enjoyed it every time I've seen it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll tell you right now, I forget what year it came out, but whenever we get to that year, that's going to be in our top 10 list. It's yeah. <laughs> it's probably going to be my number one pick because I really, I just, I just think it's a really, really great film that is underappreciated, but... Uh, hopefully I can help spread the gospel a little. Well done. All right, so what's your uh, second pick then for Tears in the Rain? Well, my second pick, uh, it's from the film Serenity. Oh, yeah. Which was the film that uh, that came on after the eight seasons of Firefly. <laughs> All eight seasons? Is that is that why you cried? Because uh, there weren't eight seasons of Firefly? That messed some people up, yeah. <laughs> no, but it's, uh, I'll just, I won't spoil it, but I'll just say, I'm a leaf on the wind, watch how I saw. There you go. Leaf on the wind, tears in the rain. This is our, our this is apparently our metaphorical, you know, simile metaphor filled episode. Yeah, we're very literate. Am, you know, we don't just talk about films. We we talk yeah. about you know. I've read I've read the book stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I like things with words too. Sometimes. Yeah, 
Words be good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, great choices, Phil. And I, I like this feature. I think it's one that we will revisit it, assuming that our egos can handle it. I'm, I'm feeling a little fragile right now. I, I got to say, I wish you weren't in the UK because I could sort of use a hug. But, you know, <laughs> hey, <man. laughs> I'll have to try and find a substitute why, here in the States. Why wash? Why? Why did it have to happen? <laughs> Joss, you sad. <laughs> So, uh, okay, well, that wraps up our Mighty Morphin mini feature for this week. Why don't we move on to our top 10 films of what year, Phil? 1967. 1967. A lot of interesting films in 1967, Phil. What else was going on that year? Okay, well, let's set the scene then. 1967, here in the UK, Harold Wilson was the Prime Minister, while over in the US, Lyndon B. Johnson was the President. The Doors and Pink Floyd released their debut album. It wasn't a team-up. It was individual albums. Oh, my God. That would be the worst album I'm... of all time. <laughs> I'm not a Either fan. Either worst or it could, be, it could be amazing. Well, I'm not a fan of either of those groups. So I, to me, the idea of like a, a, Doors, <laughs> a Doors Pink Floyd song would be a 35-minute song with a 12-and-a-half-minute organ solo in the middle of it. Yeah, they'd be catching up with the Grateful Dead. Oh, you know. God. I just had like a, a nightmare, a flash. Like I, I get chill. Like someone just stepped on my grave. All right, continue. I got to move on. Got to move past okay. this. Okay. Uh, let's see. Sadly, Apollo 1 caught fire, killing all the astronauts involved. Dr. James Bedford was the first person to be cryogenically frozen. 1967, they were doing that kind of stuff. Uh, New Orleans DA, Jim Garrison, who apparently looks a lot like Kevin Costner, claims he will right. solve the JFK assassination. Yeah, he did a bang-up job of that, too. Yep, yep. <laughs> the Pirates of the Caribbean ride opened in Disneyland. Really? 67 yeah. for Pirates yeah. of the Caribbean? Wow. Yeah. So you see, it took this long to to start making a series of films, so people stopped complaining. We had loads of years without That's right. parts of the Caribbean That's film. Right. So Elvis marries Priscilla. Mm-hmm. Uh, the UK applies for the European Economic Community membership. Um, now, because there's lots of things going on in the UK about staying in Europe or not. Fairport Convention played their first gig. The first cash machine was installed in England. Uh, also, Concord was unveiled. Isn't that that's another crazy thing? Sixty-seven, we had that supersonic. Yeah. Jetliner, and which is now no more, right. and we don't have planes, passenger planes, which do that. Uh, British Parliament decriminalised homosexuality, and the American Film Institute, the AFI, was founded as an independent non-profit organisation. Cool. Sony introduced a portable, expensive, out-of-studio black-and-white video camera system, which uh, was, was saw in the modern era of video, and Charlie Chaplin directed his final film. Uh-huh. The romantic comedy, The Countess from Hong Kong, starring Sophie Loren and Marlon Brando. And as none of us have heard of that film, I think we all know it was a flop. Yes, yes. Okay, so that's 1967 in a nutshell. Let's uh, let's go down our list. I'll take it first this time. How's that sound, Phil? That works for me. All right, so my number 10, then, is a film that I think people have probably heard of. Some people might be surprised that it's only coming in at number 10, but that film is Bonnie and Clyde. Now, here's the thing about Bonnie and Clyde. I recognize that it was a seminal film in cinema history, and it yeah. was responsible for a lot of changes in Hollywood, and it features some great performances, and there's about two-thirds of a great movie in there. But it's not one of my favorite films. It's definitely one of those movies that I appreciate more than I really enjoy. It's a little too long, um, and I just, you know, I don't know. I like it. I just don't love it. I can see that. So it, it, it eked onto the list because, again, I have a lot of respect for it. Yeah. But it's just not a film that I have a really close connection to. I don't have any really warm, fuzzy feelings about it. So. No, that's fair enough. I, I can easily see see that. Yeah. So how about your number yeah. 10? My number 10 is Point Blank, starring Lee Marvin. Very good. 
and based on the book The Hunter by Richard Stark. It was also, people haven't seen Point Blank, you might have seen Mel Gibson's film Payback, which is based on the same mm-hmm. source material. Uh, but it's Lee Marvin, he's shot in the opening moments of the film by his friend who's, uh, they've just robbed someone. And he gets double-crossed, gets shot and left for dead. He doesn't die, comes back and gets his revenge. But I, I do like the fact when you see a main character get shot, killed at the beginning of a film, because then there's always that thing in your head, well... Is this all really happening, or is it the final few moments of his life just slipping by and what he imagined would happen? Right. But uh, Lee Marvin does a powerhouse performance, just just drags you along, pulls you through, and you, you can't help but watch and see what happens. Excellent choice. Yep. Now, I'm going to say that uh, one of the many features we could have done this week uh, would have been I Can't Believe You Haven't Seen, because there are two, not ah. one, but two extremely seminal, famous, important movies that came out in 1967 that... I have not yet seen. Okay. And so I'm not going to reveal what they are yet because I'm sure they're both on your list. But I'm going to go ahead and say that that there's two <laughs> that most likely would have been on my list had I ever gotten around to seeing them, yet somehow <laughs> I haven't. I'm sure I will be embarrassed when the time comes. Okay. Well, I look forward to them. I'm sure there's some that I haven't seen as well. Yeah, we'll see. I think you got okay. me a little beat in the, this category, but, you know. Okay. All right. So my number nine, then, is You Only Live Twice. Mm-hmm. which is an early James Bond film starring Sean Connery. And if I'm being honest, it's probably one of my least favorite James Bond films. But I love James Bond. I love Sean Connery as James Bond. I don't love Sean Connery as James Bond as a Japanese man. Yes, um, yes, it's that one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's not a great James Bond film, but you know there are still some signature moments. I do always enjoy seeing Connery as Bond on film, so it made it into my list. But had it been a better Bond movie, it would have probably been a little higher on my list. I always enjoy Bond film where the henchmen are wearing like the same uniform. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that always works well. Yep, yep. Okay, so my number nine, I mentioned one of these films, I think it was a couple of episodes ago, uh, but it's uh, Quatermass in the Pit, which is a Hammer film, and over in the US it was called Five Million Years to Earth. Uh, this one, it follows Professor Quatermass, this time played by Andrew Keir, who's uh, called into an excavation in the London Underground where an ancient spacecraft has been found, and it turns out it's a, it crashed from Mars, and it's all had something to do with human evolution on Earth. But all the while, the spaceship, while they're investigating it, the spaceship is exerting its malign influence on those around it. And it's very, very good. Most enjoyable. Good one to watch late at night. I, I had a feeling this one would be on your list simply because we did just talk about the Quatermass experiment mm. uh, a couple of weeks ago. And when I yeah. saw that this had come out, uh, I would have, I, I had thought – I didn't know if it was a good sequel or not, but I kind of assumed that it might make your list. I, I obviously haven't seen this one since I haven't seen the first one, uh, but they're definitely on my list to track down. Well, I, I prefer this Quatermass in the Pet. Uh, it just – the story grabbed me a lot more, and I think it's just done a little bit better. Sure. It was also, it was basically, there was a Quatermass TV show as well, and this, the film was based on a story from that, from what I can gather, but I've never seen the TV show. Interesting. So I couldn't I tell you. I didn't know that. But, but they're, they're well worth checking out, the Quatermass films. They're, they're of the time, but they're lots of fun, a bit cheesy, but it's, uh, Professor Quatermass is quite a serious character, and it's, it's they're definitely worth checking out if you get the chance. Very cool. I will do that. One of these days. One of these days. <laughs> All right. Well, my number eight is In Like Flint, starring James Coburn. And so this almost made my list. As oh, well. yeah. It's a great film, though, you know, and sort of a kind of uh, James Bond, not parody per se, but a kind of influenced by, if you will, with a slightly more comedic bent. And, um, yeah. you know, I used there's two in like Flint movies, if I recall correctly, and I used to watch them when I was a kid. And so I do have a soft spot for them. So kind of telling about You Only Live Twice, that the, the sort of James <laughs> Bond light movie actually edged out the real James Bond film in this particular year. 
Yeah, I remember enjoying watching them as a kid, and uh, Austin Powers owes a lot to those films. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so my number eight is In the Heat of the Night, starring Sidney Poitier, who had a few films out in 1967, so I was a bit, wasn't sure which one to go to, but this one's my favourite. Mm-hmm. So I stuck with this. It's based on a novel by John Ball. Also stars Rod Steiger and Warren Oates. It's a great mystery crime thriller, which also deals with uh, racism in the deep south of America. Yes. Uh, stunning performances by all involved and some great quotes. And Sidney Potter is just amazing. They call me Mr. Tibbs. That's it. His delivery of that is just... Yeah. That'd be one of those, yeah. one of those quotes. Yeah, I, the, I was not trying in any way, shape, or form to actually sound like Sidney Poitier, just for the record there. Uh, <laughs> I don't want anybody to think that I think I'm as good of an actor as he is, but uh, that is definitely one of those quotes that you hear it. And actually, it was yeah. even uh, echoed in The Lion King, which I'm sure was lost in a lot of the younger audiences, but... Uh, when, yeah. when Pumbaa says, they call me Mr. Pig, you know, that's a, a great throwback for us adults out there. Yeah, I love it when they do stuff like that. And the recent Angry Birds movie, there was a Shining one with the twins. Right, right, right. Which is just there. They just have it there and it's gone. Yeah. And so every kid watching will be going, there's those twins again. <laughs> right. They show up everywhere. What is that? Yep. That's good stuff. <laughs> All right. So my number seven is Weekend, a film by Jean-Luc Godard. And Ooh, very nice. I um I will admit one of the biggest gaps in my film knowledge is in foreign cinema. It is not an area that I have uh, have a lot of experience with. My exposure to films by filmmakers like Godard and Fellini and some of those really you know uh, Antonioni, all those famous filmmakers from yeah. the '60s, is very minimal. Um, and actually, Weekend is the kind of movie that I normally would hate. It's very surreal. The you know the plot is negligible at best it's it's a it's a strange movie uh, but yet for some reason i really liked it uh i i find it its bizarreness in this case works for it rather than against it and uh it's yeah. beautifully shot some interesting performances and and so yeah it made it onto my list it's an interesting one it's definitely one of those curiosities but and it also has that amazing long dolly shot yes yes technically brilliant for sure yeah it goes on and on and on and on just showing a big uh, traffic jam doesn't it yeah yeah but i know, I know what you mean about the uh the french new wave kind of films and stuff it's some of them some of them are hard going but it's once like with lots of films once you start watching it they often they just pull you in right right yeah and this was definitely one of those i think for sure well it's another one which almost made my list but didn't quite make it already just because it's not one of my favorites of those films i can understand that Uh, so number seven uh, my number seven is barefoot in the park starring jane fonda robert redford um based on neil simon's 1963 play which i think i think robert redford starred in the play as well uh, follows a newlywed couple in a tiny apartment in Greenwich Village and all the various strange people who live in the same building and it's one of those films which I caught when I was younger and I just loved the whole romance and the bizarreness and the strangeness of the characters but also made me want to go over and live in New York City <laughs> even though the apartment is basically a bit of a hovel but right. it's right yeah well listen you know we haven't mentioned robert redford in, in a good handful of episodes now because yes, we were yeah. we wanted to give people a break but people who have been listening since the early episodes will be shocked shocked i tell you to find out that this is a robert redford film that i have not seen oh okay so that is a big yeah shock. believe yeah. it or not yeah i um uh, you know it's it's sometimes it's tough with those older movies like that you know obviously when i was younger i didn't have a lot of interest in some romance movie yeah. from the 60s and you know then when i got interested into red in redford and i wanted to see more of his films it's it's sort of on my list, but it's one of those ones where I, I keep waiting, like, eventually I know they'll do, like, an anniversary edition DVD or a special Blu-ray or something, so I know it'll yeah. eventually end up in my hands, and then I'll watch it, but I, I haven't seen it just yet, so. Fair enough. But great pick, great pick. 
Yeah. Well, my number six is the Disney classic, The Jungle Book. Uh, and, um, you know, Mowgli, Baloo, and Bagheera, and it's a lot of fun. It's I love classic Disney movies, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, and I enjoy the songs in this one. It's just sort of one of those movies I grew up watching and have never gotten tired of, so that's my pick. Uh, I think the thing about The Jungle Book, it's never, it was never one of my favorites because I always feel it was – there was a few good songs in it and those moments are good, but then the rest around the songs, mm. just – it's sort of all – always felt like it was never quite all there. I can understand that. I mean, yeah. I, you know, it's definitely it's definitely a film I enjoy. It's a film that I like yeah. very much. I don't know that if I had to rank my Disney films, it would be at the top of the list. But I, you know, I can see I can see that. But you know, I, I still enjoy it. Although, although, to be fair, I didn't see it when I was a little kid. It was one of the ones I saw when I was a bit probably as a teenager. Right. So that probably, certainly could yeah. have an impact without a yeah. doubt. Yeah. So my number six is The Graduate, a little film starring Dustin Hoffman, Anne Bancroft, and Catherine Ross, directed by Mike Nichols, and with a Simon and Garfunkel soundtrack. If you haven't seen it, you will have seen it referenced in so many films and TV shows, Mrs. Robinson and all that jazz. But it's a good film, great camera work. Yeah, some great shots and some great composition, like with the classic scene when you, you see Anna Bancroft putting on her stockings and Dustin Hoffman in the doorway, lots of things like that. Uh, and just really good film, good filmmaking. Well, there's number one of the two, Phil. I have never seen The Graduate. Ah, oh, okay. I know, and I'm embarrassed to say it. And I've oh, that's another one I've owned uh, for a long time. It happens to the best of yeah, us. Yeah, it's just I, you know, again, I've I've always wanted to see it, but that is definitely one of those films where it's like I I, I kind of feel like I have to be in the mood to watch it, you know? Yeah, and it, yeah, because it's it's kind of one of those. It's a little bit bleak in places, right? You know, I mean, I'm familiar with the story. I've seen some clips from it. I've seen the famous shot where he walks in and she's putting the stockings. Like, you know, I know about the film, but yeah, I just haven't ever gotten around to actually popping it in and watching it. So. Soon, soon, one of these days, I'll get around to fixing that. Popping and watch it, there's another name for a feature. <laughs> there you go. That's right. <laughs> I like that. So my number five is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which would be another one of those Sidney Poitier films from yeah. that year. And I was uh, flip-flopping between that one and then Heat of the Night. Right. Well, I think yeah. uh, I, I enjoy them both. Uh, I think that uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is, is a great film, again, dealing with some racism, um, you know, but great characters, uh, you know, really solid movie, very of its time, you know, but it holds up really well. So it made my list. Very good. Okay. Did, I mean, just the fact it's got Tracy... Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn as well, just right, just I, incredible. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's really a, a pretty amazing cast. The three of them together for sure. Yeah. Okay, so my number five is Le Samurai, uh, the wonderful Jean-Pierre Melville uh, film starring Alan Delon. Very stylish film. Uh, Alan Delon plays a pretty much silent hitman for the most part. Some stunningly shot. Delon is wonderful as the enigmatic Jeff Costello wandering around Paris. Some iconic scenes and moments and as you were saying before there's some it's one of the french new wave ones it's uh it's well worth checking out if you haven't seen it but if you have seen it or when you do get to see it you will realize it's influenced lots of other films like uh nicholas winding reference drive because the character that ryan gosling plays is a lot like the character from the samurai very interesting mm. all right well my number four then is the dirty dozen one of the great war films of all time, of course, with an yes. all-star cast. And, uh, I, you know, it's just sort of an iconic war movie, uh, but it's also a good war movie. And sometimes those aren't the same thing. You know, as we talked about... Also, with, also a fun war movie, if it can be one. Yeah. It's a fun one. Right, right. It definitely has a sense of fun to it. It's not bleak. It's not, you know, depressing. It's not gritty and violent. I mean, it has that stuff in it to an extent, but it's definitely, you know, like you said, it's got a sense of fun to it. So uh, a movie I enjoy very much. 
Very good. Okay, my number four is one you've mentioned, Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde. There you go. Warren Beatty, Faye Dunaway, Gene Hackman. Apparently it broke various cinematic taboos at the time and had the iconic ending and was heavily influenced by, we've already mentioned a couple of times, French New Wave directors. Mm-hmm. But there you go. I enjoy it. I like the old performances. I could totally understand what you're getting at because it's uh, it does it is a bit too long. Yeah. But uh, and some of the decisions work, some of them don't. Like some of them, one minute's like almost broad comedy and then it becomes mega violent and right. things like that. But I quite like it. It's uh, it's a bit of a mishmash, I suppose, but it, uh, it works for me. Well, like I said, it's definitely considered a classic and, you know, it is it is a well-regarded movie. So I think, you know, I think it's a good choice. It's just one that, yep. like I said, was a little, a little lower on my list. Okay. All right, so... We're in the top three now. Yes, in the top three. My number three, another film that's appeared on your list. It is In the Heat of the Night. So Sidney Poitier makes two appearances on my list. Very good. Uh, I think you said most what needs to be said about it. Great film, very quotable, just a, a nice, you know, solid you know, cops and racism. I mean, really, what more can you ask for? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's the thing which never goes away. Right, right, exactly. I mean, it's it's really just as topical today as it was back then, really. (laughs) Yeah, crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so my number three is, uh, we're going to have a failure to communicate on this one. It's Cool Hand Luke. Uh Uh-huh. Paul Newman is the prisoner who refuses to submit. Cars get washed, chain gangs do stuff on the road, and hard-boiled eggs get eaten. And it's great. Paul Newman is the guy. He he, says, he doesn't give up. All the prisoners love him. Gets built up and up and up. And things go bad, but he never gives up. Great great film and a great performance by all involved. And Q Psy. Is this the second film? This is the second seen? film that I haven't uh, seen. That I knew would be on your list. And yeah. another one I've owned for a long time. And I do. I'm a huge Paul Newman fan, actually. Although I came into being a Paul Newman fan later uh, in my movie going, my movie watching years, I, I think yeah. it sort of took. I don't actually. <laughs> do you want to know what movie really made me a Paul Newman fan? Go on, Cars. Oh my god! Because he plays <laughs> yeah, Doc yeah, Hudson, and I love yeah. his performance in that movie. I know that's silly, but I listen. I mean, I you know, as a voice actor, I appreciate good voice acting. And I think his performance as Doc Hudson in that movie is part of why the ending gets me so choked up because Doc Hudson is such a great character and Paul Newman is so terrific with that gravelly voice, you know, and everything. He just yeah. really, he is my favorite character in that movie, hands down. Well, there you go. And that's... that was the movie that sort of really made me go back and sort of take stock of Paul Newman and sort of start watching some of his, his older films. But I haven't yet gotten to Cool Hand Luke. Oh, you need to get to it. But uh, that's, a, that's a great way to get into Paul Newman, whichever way works you know so. right well yeah i mean ultimately it's you know it, it any film will do but that and i'd seen him before in some things like butch casting the sundance kid and the sting yeah, and I'd, yeah i'd enjoyed him but that was the one that really made me go man paul newman if he can do that much with just his voice like i really got to see what else he can do there you go all right so moving into the top two my number two is in cold blood based on the book by truman capote starring robert blake it's a dark film and it's actually not one that i grew up watching i think probably safely uh, i'm kind of glad i didn't experience that film <laughs> as as young as a lot of other classic hollywood movies i i think i saw it sometime uh in the late 90s or so but i it's definitely uh, a really dark film but but in an era where the the end of the Hayes code the censorship code was sort of coming you know coming to an end and bonnie and clyde was sort of ushering in this new era of film this is a really disturbing film and uh you know it's a crime thriller but it, it also sort of works as a horror movie on some level so this is another one of those films i don't know that it's something i'm going to watch over and over again it is really yeah. kind of disturbing but as a film that's just really well made and acted you know i i respect it greatly 
Well, that's a film I've been aware of for a long time, but I've never actually seen. So. Oh, look at that. Finally, the, so, I yeah. finally got one where I've seen it and yeah. you haven't. I think that's probably yeah. uh, not maybe not a first, but it certainly isn't as, as often as the other way around. So, well, it's definitely worth checking out, but be prepared to be in kind of a depressed mood afterwards. It's a it's a pretty dark film. Well, apparently, though, as well, it's uh, the first major U.S. studio film to include uh, the swear word. Well, as we don't swear in this podcast, <laughs> it's the one beginning with S. Right. And it's the f- first film to include that in its dialogue. Yeah, so that was the first one. Interesting. Well, I didn't, back I didn't in 1967. know that. Right. But yeah, I must check that one out. Yeah, it's worth watching for sure. So my number two is one you've already mentioned. It's The Dirty Dozen. Of course. Very good. Robert, directed Robert Aldrich, Lee Marvin, Ernest Borgnine, Charles Bronson, Jim Brown, John Cassavetti, Telly Savalas. I mean, what a phenom- phenomenal cast. Oh, yeah. That, that's doubt. only a few of them, obviously. That's only half. At least. <laughs> <laughs> I was say, there's, there's at least a dozen. <laughs> yeah. But it's, uh, yeah, Marvin puts together a team to go on a suicide mission and it's been... It's apparently it was based on a sort of true, loosely based on a true story. Right. But it was, uh, I think there was 13 in the uh, in that one. Well, but then you can't have a cool title. Like, you know, I know. the, the Dirty Baker's Dozen just doesn't really yeah, have the same yeah. ring, you know. But that, that story has been carried on through various other films and TV shows, cartoons, and obviously the Suicide Squad, which is, is a whole take on that, the basic, right. the basic setup's exactly the same as the Dirty Dozen. Yep, yep. Yeah, but that's my number two. All right, great choice. Okay, so bringing it in, I have a sneaking suspicion that maybe we have the same number one film, which I think would be a first, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be the first. Let's see. Well, let's see what happens. So my number one pick is The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Ooh. You know, another one that maybe isn't the greatest film in the world, but it's it's an iconic movie. I love the fact that it's, it's a near-silent film because there's so little dialogue in it. And Clint Eastwood is just such a great screen presence that, you know, e- even if there are better movies out there, uh, this is one that to me is just, when it comes to movies that made Hollywood what it is, this one qualifies as one of them. Yeah, so. well, it's, it's an amazing film. I totally agree. But, however... Oh, but it's not your number one. No, well, it almost is. Okay. But due to the fact you're in the US and I'm in the UK, and film openings were slightly different. Over here, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly didn't open until 1968. Oh, interesting. Okay, I didn't realize that. So 1968, Good, The Bad, and The Ugly would probably be my number one for that year. But okay. for 1967, A Fistful of Dollars opened in the UK. Really? Yeah, so that's my number one. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah. So we sort of almost kind of had the same film as our yeah. number one, but not really. But it's yeah, wow. but, uh, we got twice... We've got two spaghetti western films, the price of one. But yes, so there we go. It's uh, well, we almost had the same film. Yeah, that's very interesting how that works out. So yeah. very, they were related films at least. Our, yeah. our our number one films were cousins this year. Yes, yes. All right, great. Well, that wraps up 1967. If you uh, would like to share your top 10 films of 1967, we would love to hear it. Uh, before we get into uh, wrapping things up, Phil, though, why don't you tell us about the top 10 box office hits for the year? Yes, the top grossing films. Where number ten, Thoroughly Modern Millie, number nine, Born Losers, which starred Tom Laughlin or Lachlan, which I haven't seen. Number eight was a Sydney Poitier film to Sir with Love, which we didn't right. neither of us picked. Yeah, you know, that one's uh one of those ones that I haven't seen, but I do want to. I, I yeah, understand it's a, it's a good film, but but he was boy, nineteen sixty seven was a good year for Sydney Poitier. Yeah, really good year for him. But uh, to Sir with Love is a very good film, but uh as I say I liked in the Heat of the Night more. Number seven you mentioned it, You Only Live Twice. Mm-hmm. It's a Bond film, so it's always going to be a big one. Right. Number six was Valley of the Dolls. Right. Another one I really want to see, but I haven't gotten around yeah. to. I couldn't recall whether I've actually seen that or not. I've got <laughs> recollections of seeing it, but I'm not sure whether I'm thinking of another film. Right. Uh, right. Number five was The Dirty Dozen. Yep. 
Number four, we both had it, Bonnie and Clyde. Mm, of course. Number three, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Yep. Number two was The Jungle Book. And number one was The Graduate. Oh, there you go. So a lot of the top ten films were, were made mm. onto one of our lists or the other. So. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, that's going to wrap up 1967, and next week we will be traveling to the recent past, and we will be visiting the year 2014 and discussing our top 10 films of that year. So if you want to get in a preemptor, preemptory, preemptive, preemptive, yeah. So if you want to get in a preemptive top 10 list, send us your top 10 films of 2014, and we'll read them out in the episode as we read ours. Yeah, it's, I think uh, doing one so close to the present it could be more difficult than some, these older years we've been doing. Yeah, I think there will definitely be some yeah. more more differences in our lists for sure. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. we shall see. All right, Phil, so why don't you tell everybody what movies we're going to be talking about next week? We will be talking about Disney's Beauty and the Beast, the animated one, because the live-action one is still heading our way. And also the cult classic, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Yes, and that, that means this is going to be our Buckaroo Banzai Beauty and the Beast episode, which is nice alliteration, <laughs> something I'm a big fan of. That's going to be a fun mix, I think. You know, it's our first animated film, yeah. and uh, Buckaroo Banzai is one of those films that people really, really love or they haven't seen. Most people haven't seen it, but it does have a very strong cult following. Yeah. I, I love it. I have some opinions about that film. That is a surprise. But which I will share next week. <laughs> but I, I love the film, but yeah. I have watched it with people who have been spent the whole time looking at it open-mouthed and then looked at me in disgust and going, what have I just watched? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's definitely um, it's an interesting film for sure, which we will discuss in detail in next week's episode. So please join us then. Phil, why don't you tell everybody how they can get a hold of us, drop us a line, share their thoughts on this week's episode or anything that they want. Go ahead and give them the scoop. Okay, you can find us over on the Twitter machine at after underscore the ending and also on facebook.com backslash after the ending podcast. And you can also email us at after the ending at verizon.net. That's a V E R I Z O N, verizon.net. And if you are not already listening to us, but you, of course, have to be listening to us, but if you are looking for a new way to listen to us, you can find us not only on iTunes, but also on SoundCloud and Stitcher, which is a popular app and website as well. And as always, any time or place you can leave a review or help spread the word about this show would be greatly appreciated by both Phil and myself. Yes. Any review, any five-star, or just telling your friends to listen to this podcast, which you've been listening to, which you feel is the best podcast in the world, just just do it. Yeah, I mean, in, in our completely unbiased opinion, this is obviously the best podcast, so why wouldn't you want to tell everybody you know about it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just simple math. Well, it's the best podcast that the person listening to this is currently listening to. That That is a fact. Mm, you can't argue with that one. Unless someone's listening to two podcasts at once, but I have to imagine that would be pretty difficult. Well, we don't want those kind of people listening. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but if you are listening to this in another podcast, we're not talking about you. Right, right. We're talking about somebody else, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, Phil, why don't you tell people where they can find you on the web? You can find me at liveforfilms.com for all your movie news, reviews, trailers, posters, artwork, and other things. And it's also all over the Facebook Twitter, G+, Pinterest, and whatever else. There's loads of other social media, and I'm probably there as well. Very good. Uh, Mike, where can you be found online? Well, you can find me at wordsoutloud.com, the creative hub of all things Mike Spring, where you can find out about the podcast, about my writing, some fiction projects that are coming out, live appearances I'm doing, and most importantly, you can get a free audiobook, a free 
ebook and a free digital preview ebook of my upcoming novel. So three free items you can receive just for swinging over to wordsoutloud.com. That's the trifecta of free stuff. It is, isn't it? It's, yeah, you, you like gotta it. like that. And you can also follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash official. And that's where you can find us online. So hit us up with any questions, any thoughts about what we've spoken about in this or any previous episodes, and we will share them on a future episode at a later date. Indeed we will. All right, well, that's going to wrap us up for this episode. As always, we greatly appreciate your tuning in. Many thanks for listening. Uh, hopefully it wasn't too much of a chore. <laughs> I hope not, unless you're listening to two podcasts, and then, then of course, it could get difficult. But... Yeah, but as we said before, we don't talk about that. <laughs> All right, well, thank you again for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. I do. I wish I knew where my synopsis went. <laughs> oh, there it is. Okay, sorry. I was a little concerned for a minute. When Mark hears about the murder at Lori's house, he and Will escape and return. No, when Will learns. All these teenagers, I can't keep their names straight. <laughs> Get off my lawn. They all deserve to die. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, luckily, most of them do. <laughs> Very nicely done. I already said that like three times. I'll do something else. Very nicely done. Yeah, thank you. You know, Chick. What's his name? Chick? What's his name? Michael Keaton's Picard. You don't know because you don't like the movie. And until then, though, we are going to move on. Oh, and you know what? Also, don't forget, if you, uh, I'm sure people, well, we, people already shared this. Never mind. I already, I'll stop. So that is our Mighty Morphin mini feature for this week. And so we will, uh, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know anything, apparently. I can't even finish a sentence. Well, it's, uh, yeah, well, I've just done the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> We're quite the pair. Mm. <laughs> We're definitely, definitely two guys who should be hosting a podcast. Uh, so let's move on to our top 10 then film film. Yep. Yep. I should, it would be so much easier if your name was film. Yes. Because I say that word like 20 times every podcast and I say your name. So like eventually they're going to get, I, I know they're going to well, mix that, up. That's unfair because your name already is something to do with a, uh, you know, sound recording. Oh, that's right. I'm, I'm live Mike. Live Mike. <laughs> but I'm bumped. <laughs> Thank you. I'll be here all week. <laughs> Try the fish. <laughs> I think we already used that joke, man. That's bad. I know we're we have only yeah. fifteen episodes in. No, it wasn't. We haven't already used it. it was a callback. Oh, that's, that's it. It's it was, a yeah. callback, callback, right? Yes, yeah. and callbacks are brilliant. So actually, yeah. we're geniuses. Yeah, I can't tell you which episode we're doing a callback to, but it was the one where I said, "Try the fish." <laughs> <laughs> All right. I need to work on my callbacks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we need to work on a lot of things, but anyway. Tears um, in the rain. Tears, tears in the, the rain. rain. Tears in the rain. <laughs> All right. So uh, this was an interesting year. I had thought, um, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know. I just, <laughs> I'm just saying things, and I'm not. I'm not. <sighs> I must be such a disappointment to you, Phil. Starring Clint Eastwood, Sergio Leone's first in the spaghetti western trilogy that made, uh, the, or the the Sergio Leone's first spaghetti western in the No Man with I God. Okay. Surgically dead. <laughs> All right. Well, great. So that wraps up 1967. Next year. Nope. Not next year. We'll be back before next year. <laughs> you can find me mainly at arts. What's art? You can, find, you, you can mainly find it. I think I was going to do a German accent or something. <laughs>